Yeah, thanks, Alex. And uh, Alex is one of our interns for the summer, too. He's an amazing guy I've loved getting to work with and get to know. And uh, so my name is Grant. I'm the other pastor here. And I've had a bit more of the privilege to work with the uh, youth group for a number of years and just more recently with just our kids and all of our next-gen programs. And that's why we're doing a little bit of a series looking at God's design and God's call for us uh, influencing and pouring into the next generation. And, uh, and so it's really fun. I'm excited for this morning and carrying off of last week too, but I'm just looking around and like, you guys look warm. You doing okay? You're not even under the spotlights. There is, I do want to remind you, there is some cold water out. Just, I won't be offended. Grab cold water. I need it too. Uh, stay cool because I've got about 48 minutes of great content for you. You're like, you don't believe me. <laughs> Come on. I am going to start with a story, though. So a few years ago, one night, I got woken up in the middle of the night, like 2, 3 a.m. Uh, we've got two cats. And uh, if you're cat lovers or not, you, they're, they're obnoxious animals, right? And they get triggered by everything. And so they were making some big ruckus at our front door. They were just smashing, growling, snarling at the front windows. And this happens time to time. Maybe there's raccoons on our, we're in a basement suite. Uh, so maybe there's just raccoons on our patio or we've, there's like a rival cat in the neighborhood that just comes and they just have at it across the door. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go do this. I have to go kick a raccoon again or something. And then I go and then I, so I flick on the lights and then I see the biggest raccoon I've ever seen in my life. And I thought, oh man, like, okay. But then I saw his buddies and I realized it's not a raccoon. This, these are bear cubs. We got a picture. Yeah, look at that. So what I woke up to one morning and I was like, okay, um, I'm not chasing those things away. I tried to make some noise. I was banging on the doors, right? So here's the thing. I, I grew up in Surrey. My wife and I, we grew up in Surrey, right? And there's not, you don't deal with bears in Surrey. You deal with people. Absolutely, you got to worry about that. But I'm not used to the bear thing. So we were ignorant. We had a deep freeze on our patio. And at the moment, yeah, so it was full of pie and ice cream. And so then the bears got to have some pie and ice cream. And they were just going to town. And so like, what do we do, right? And, and I was thinking like, okay, you know what? They went out into the yard eventually. There's another great shot, I think. They're out in the yard. Oh, yeah, scratching their backs on the tree. This is a fun night. I got no sleep. But uh, they grabbed, it was like birchwood dairy ice cream too. They were just head in the bucket, going to town, eating. And I thought, I could probably chase these things away, right? There you go. Got the ice cream. And then I saw it. About five feet tall, black, lurking mama bear. And uh, there's, there's, she's standing at the fence there, but she came right up at one point. She's on our path at the patio. And then that's, so if, whether you're outdoorsy and you hike all the time, or even if you've never touched gravel, you know you don't mess with a mama bear and her cubs, right? You just don't get in there. So it was like, hey, we're staying inside and we're hiding. Like even that, I was like, the window, that's not gonna be thick enough. And so we kind of just, I, we made some noise, flashlights, didn't phase them. They were having the time of their life. We called, we found an emergency conservation officer line. And he said the same thing, like, well, don't mess with the mama bear and her cubs. So get rid of the deep freeze in the morning. And yeah, okay, that's what we did. But so here's the thing that I want to kind of focus on today. You don't mess with a mama bear and her cubs. God is the biggest, baddest mama bear around and we don't take God's protective nature seriously enough. I know I never thought I'd say that in a sermon. It's gonna come up a few times. We don't take God's protective nature seriously enough though. We don't focus on that. We don't focus on his challenge and call to replicate that in our lives too and in our world, our culture. So last week we took a look 
at the story of Israel. I gotta walk around, the ADD is just driving me nuts. We took a look at the story of Israel, the big picture of how God called his people. They were enslaved in Egypt. God delivered them out of Egypt, out of slavery, uh, the whole Exodus story. And then after 400 years of slavery, there was now this kind of wandering in the desert. And so there was a little bit more detachment. You had a whole generation of people who experienced God's power, experienced his miraculous deliverance. They were free. They were moving into their own land. And then in only three generations, they completely abandoned God and forgot about him. And we took a look at kind of what happened there. And, and the, the simple kind of summary of it all is the fact that often when we're looking at generational influence and pouring into the next generation, we often get this mindset of pouring our world into them. We create our world for the next generation and we kind of just try to pass off stuff loosely rather than God's design of actually empowering and bringing up a generation underneath us. Um, but so we're, what we're going to do, focus a little bit this morning, a, a bit earlier on the moment before the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt. And, and what had happened is God worked through a man named Moses and a man named Aaron and he used them as prophets, he used them as uh, speakers to speak to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt at the time. And they're, essentially, he just sent them with a simple message. He said, Moses, go tell Pharaoh that God says it's time to let my people go. And Moses did that. And Pharaoh said, not a chance. This is my workforce. They're staying. And it kind of became this back and forth, this battle, these threats, these plagues. This is the famous 10 plagues. If, if you're not familiar with the story, maybe you've heard of like the plagues. You got locust and the Nile turns into blood. All these crazy things from the Bible. It's uh, the old Charleston Hessen Moses movie, right? But then around the eighth plague, Pharaoh starts to bargain a bit. And we get this moment in Exodus 10 where the, the Egypt is just falling to pieces because of these plagues that God is uh, pouring onto Pharaoh and his kingdom. And Pharaoh starts to bargain and his, his, uh, the people around him start saying stuff like, hey, Pharaoh, what if we just let some of them go? What if we even just let the men go, right? And we'll just keep the next, we'll get the next generation. Let the men go, do their thing. And so then in Exodus uh, chapter 10, verse nine, we get this, Moses, so Pharaoh's talking to Moses and he kind of says like, how about like, okay, you can go, but what's the deal, what do you want? And Moses says this, Moses answered, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and your children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord since that's what you've been asking for. And Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. It wasn't good enough for Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh said, just, just let the men go. Leave us the rest. And here, here's the funny thing. Like, when you look through history, right, this could have been the peaceful solution. This could have brought the men go out. They start the whole thing in Israel. They leave a generation behind. This could have been the peaceful compromise. There was a lot of bloodshed that came after this because the conflict just kept rising. And, and let the men go and start the whole thing. And I can kind of see, like, some of the women are thinking, like, there's no way the men would start their own civilization. But we tend to look for peaceful compromises a lot, I think. When there's something that's not working out, like God has called us into this, we know that this is right, the world kind of says this, maybe here's an in-between we can kind of do and compromise a bit. But compromise is not good enough for God. Because see, the thing is for God, the children are non-negotiable. That whole interaction, Pharaoh says, okay, fine, you go with the men, do your thing, right? But leave the women and children, and Moses is not a chance, the young and the old. 
the sons and the daughters are coming with us. And this isn't a one-time isolated story. Throughout the whole Old Testament, this collection of books describing histories and prophets, uh, kings and genealogies, this is God interacting with his people. There is a theme. I mean, this is also the Old Testament is the book that's full of wars, right? And damage and disease and conflict, tribal conflicts and massacres. Uh, It's pretty real. And thousands of years of all this, and you also have uh, Israel moving through a land full of pagan rituals and other religions. There's this overall theme of God leading and guiding his people to be different. And in fact, to stand strong against. And in fact, too, those, those times when there is war involved and God says, okay, it's time to get involved, is when kids are involved. So here, uh, check out some of these verses. I don't have them on the screen, but just in Leviticus, a book full of laws and commands that God gave. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, who is one of the idol gods, the pagan religions around. For you must not profane the name of your God. Deuteronomy, you must not worship the Lord your God in the way that they do, because they're worshiping their gods. They do call all kinds of detestable things that God hates. They even burn their sons and their daughters as sacrifices. It says again in another chapter, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or their daughter to these gods. All these other nations do these insane practices. Uh, and, but then what happens is there's this influence that kind of comes on with compromise. So you think like, what an insane thing. But then in Jeremiah, you get the people of Judah, part of Israel, part of God's kingdom, have done evil in my eyes. They have set up their detestable idols and they have burned their sons and daughters in fire. Something I did not command, nor did it even enter into my mind. So then God says this, and it's intense. Beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call that land Topeth, the valley of Ben-Himam. This is where he's talking about. But instead, the valley of slaughter. For I will bury the dead until there's no more room in this valley. See, God is a mama bear who doesn't relent when it comes to the kids. Every time... There's in like massive conflict and God says, this can't happen. We're wiping everything out. And we think, what an insane thing. We forget the evils that can actually happen in the world. And these are the times when kids are involved that God says, I'm not holding back. Second Kings, it goes again. He talks about another king of Israel. He followed the ways of those kings and even sacrificed his son in the fire. He did detestable things. So then going on a few more chapters, he talks about the prophet who came and he said, Josiah desecrated Topeth, that place of Ben-Hammam, so that no one could ever sacrifice their daughters or even go there again. God says these things right. Okay, this is intense, right? What a fun Sunday morning chat. And, you know, it's one of those things, like, this isn't the stuff that we go through in, like, the kids programming downstairs in thick detail. This is looking at the realities of a more barbaric age, a, a time when there was sacrifices and hor- horrific rituals. War was common. Pagan rituals were common. And the thing is, when God sees humanity endanger the young generations, his response is emotional. His response is elimination. His response is... My people, stop this from happening. It won't get to continue. It ends here. You won't come across a more protective mama bear than Yahweh. And then thousands of years later, Jesus comes onto the scene. And it's a more developed, socially ordered world. Uh, Roman Empire is in play. There is, there's not really like conflicts of tribes slaughtering tribes anymore. anymore. There is a government in place. There's civil law enforcement. Murder was a social no-no. It was a crime. You just can't do that. 
And so then Jesus is teaching, and he's speaking and leading and calling his disciples and preaching the message of salvation and uh, a lot of dialogue about peacemaking, right, and forgiveness. Except for, then you get to Luke chapter 17, and Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says this, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones, some translations say young ones, to stumble. So watch yourselves. We have a picture of a millstone to, and here's the thing, this wasn't a euphemism. This wasn't like a, a commonplace saying, you know, we, we kind of sometimes say, if something's really, really funny, you're dying of laughter, right? You might even say like, you're killing me. It would just go straight to the Gen Z thing. Somebody sends you something funny on TikTok. You just reply with the skull and crossbones emoji and you just say dead, right? Because it's so funny, you're dead. That, that wasn't this. This goes well beyond a slang saying. This is Jesus literally saying in a protective, unrelenting, mama bear God way of saying, don't get in the way or the plans or the designs I have placed for every single young person, every single person on the planet who's made in my image. Don't get in their way. Don't impede that. And in fact, it would be better not if you were just dead, but if you were brutally drowned. There's a millstone, it's about 200 pounds, tied around a neck, thrown into the sea. That's it, right? You can't swim against that. So here's the point. The way we influence and impact younger generations really matters. The way we stand up for and guide younger generations really matters. And so in the words of Jesus, watch yourselves. This might sound really intimidating. This might be kind of an intense start to the message, and it is, because that's what's been on my mind a lot. It's one of the things that we often think about, you know, kids' generation stuff, let's let them have fun, let's just keep them safe, and, and that's it, and they'll just get there. And we often think, you know, maybe I can just protect my kids or the people who are close around me, and the rest of the world is gonna burn. It's what it is, it's fine, we'll kind of isolate. That's a little bit of the Mennonite history thing, is let's create a bit of a colony outside of the world they're messed up, we can figure it out here on our own. But it's not enough to raise our own kids and guide our own kids towards God because God wants them all. He wants the younger generation not to just survive, not just to grow up, but to actually thrive and to actually grow into and discover the created in God's image kind of being they were meant to be. And it's our job as followers of Jesus to help guide that and to help younger generations realize that truth in their lives. And this is done by modeling life in and inviting life, inviting them into the life inside something called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to focus on that a bit more this morning here too. So this is your first time hearing the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I'm really glad. It's exciting. Because see, in the gospels, the first four books of the New Testament which are a recording and an account of the life of Jesus, the work, the ministry, the teachings of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus uses this concept, the term, the kingdom of God, over 50 times. And what he's talking about is, so all throughout history, the Old Testament, God has led his people and called them a nation with God as their king. But the challenge is you, they have a kingdom, but it looks kind of weird because in our world, we want a physical king. We want a physical ruler, so, you know, somebody we see on TV or in the newspaper. 
somebody, prime minister, president, whatever, somebody who we can, you know, look at whether we like them or maybe we just want somebody to blame, right, for all the problems going on. But we want something physical happening. And, and instead, God says, no, that's not what you're meant to be. You have a king. I am a king. I'm the creator of the world. And you're a nation that has this king. But it's going to be invisible in the way the world expects to see a kingdom. But it's going to be very real and very visible by the evidence of the transformed lives of its citizens. That's the visibility of the kingdom of God is the people, not the king. And we kind of reflect that, we show that. See, so citizens of this kingdom, we don't live by social standards, we live by God's standards. And we often forget, I think, that the church, that following Jesus is a countercultural way of life. We often think that we can find ways to kind of fit in and sneak God's truth into what's going on in the world, but actually God regularly calls us into something that is pretty radically different than what's going on in the world outside of his kingdom. And I think that there are some key focuses, some kind of efforts that God made to us. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're exploring this, if you're part of this kingdom or not, God made efforts to you to be part of that kingdom. And they're the same kind of things that I think God challenges us to make the same efforts outside and especially to younger generations. So I wanna focus on some of those efforts that I think will actually can be profound, can be shaping of the culture because again, it's not enough to just focus on our kids, this small little community, create a bit of a cult outside of the world in mission. We have a whole city here full of young families, full of young generations that we influence and impact and are surrounded by every day that we have the truth of God to speak into their lives. So there's three things that I think, because I like the number three. I just make them up if I have to find like two more and I've just got one point. But I've got three things. The first one is to elevate the younger generations, to elevate the next generation. And this ties in a little bit. I kind of want to recap on last week we looked at the design God has for passing along wisdom and information and empowering the next generation. And see, the thing is, it's not that God has a sweet spot for kids. It's not that he thinks they're cute and sweet and really delicate and nice, so I just love them right, like this grandmotherly kind of love, is that God actually has this passion. He, he designed our world to be a growing genealogy of the older generation serving the younger generation and serving the younger generation and pouring in and growing in that kind of way. It goes on and on. And see, in our world, outside of this kingdom of God, we have this model where you have a generation, grows in power, gets bigger, gets more powerful until that kind of fizzles out. And then they drop it and let go and say, fine, you take it over. And it just drops. And there's maybe if there is some intentional influence, it's saying, okay, hold on to the reins I've created and gather my, or, and can continue the power that we've kind of made. But instead, in the kingdom model, it's a little bit different because we're not trying to create a world, like our world for them to live in. We actually want to raise up and create their world for them right? It, it means not helping create our world for the younger generation. It means helping create their world for the younger generation. Then they do the same for the next generation, the next generation down. It's not sustainable. Literally after one generation, it falls to pieces if you just try to focus on your needs and your world and your life. And two, there's a way that God sees us, all of us, and I love this. There's a quote from evangelist Luis Palau. He says, God doesn't have grandkids or great-grandkids or great-great-great-grandkids. He has no grandchildren. God only has sons or daughters. 
And what that means in God's eyes in this, in this world, in this kingdom, is we have brothers and sisters in Christ. We might have physical, literal grandkids, and that, that generational relationship does remain. I'm not deconstructing that kind of a piece, but in terms of their potential to follow Jesus, their potential to influence the world, because, you see, you get to the point where you're 85 years old, and then your grandkids are in their 30s, storming into their life and their professional, they got their family going, they've got their career going, and if it's still just, you know, grandkid, grandchild, without seeing that they've actually been working on, now they're influencing their own generation, God has sons and daughters, and he sees us all beautifully and made in his image. And here's the thing, this doesn't just mean saying, you're awesome, do all the stuff, we're going to lift you up. This actually means disciplining younger generations as if we actually love them. Because the common thread in our world right now is, honestly, right, like, like kids, youth, teenagers, I've worked with youth for a while, they do dumb things. They do wild things, they do weird, crazy things as they're growing, as they're stretching, as they're exploring boundaries and the world around them. And that is exhausting to manage, to be a youth leader, to be a parent, to be a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a boss or whatever. It is exhausting. And so what's easier and what's less loving is to just keep lowering the bar and to just keep isolating into their own mess of burning fire and say, okay, do that stuff and destroy it all. It's fine. I don't really care. We're going to empower you by giving you no guidance, no discipline, no strategy, none of God's intention or goals for your life of how things can be better. All that is not done out of love, it's done out of apathy, but the way Jesus loved his disciples or the way God calls us to love people is actually elevating people around you and loving them enough to actually discipline and correct and get involved in the thick and difficult things and saying, that's wrong, this is better. That's also key, is not just criticizing. That kind of brings us into the next point. So the first one is we elevate them. The second point is, because God elevated us, we stand up for and defend them. And this, this whole area challenged me a lot. I'm, I'm going to be honest, because when I was reading through God's, the way God defended and stepped in and, and reacted emotionally to younger generations, I, I was thinking back on myself and, and just my experience as a follower of Jesus and, and a little bit our church here too because I think, now if I'm being completely honest, I think we often have a bit of a passive response. Now our church being a Mennonite church, we have a history that's rooted in a pacifist kind of mindset of peacemaking and, and peace loving and sometimes that gets a little bit um, mixed up with just being passive and not being active in stuff. And what can happen is we often will have stuff, right? Like, like tell me if this resonates with you. you. There's something going on that you disagree with. You know it's not the way God has designed the world. There's something going on you see on social media or you see it literally happening. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in the church here, right? And you're like, that's not right. But you're just too uncomfortable to like actually get involved. So instead, you just get a little bit bitter. You just kind of remove your influence from it, right? So if your kids are just like, I can just tuck them away here and put them into something separate. And maybe you just start posting stuff on your Instagram stories. Uh, you find somebody else's words who said the thing that you just posted. And you know, like let's just be honest, that's not changing anybody's opinion. And that's kind of our way of being 
actively defensive for the stuff we don't like in the world. Here's the challenge because, and, and this takes boldness, and this makes me uncomfortable, is to actually be more active in defending our younger generations and saying, no, this is God's design for them to grow up in our world and to actually speak up. Now hear me, I'm not saying getting out there and protesting and attacking, being aggressive. We're not marching on anything because that's not actually defense, that's just obnoxious. What I am saying is we actually need the boldness to speak up and challenge and lead with an alternative practice, an alternative lifestyle, anything that is harming our younger generation's growth and development. And you know, there's so much here, I don't honestly, with the short amount of time I have, I don't wanna like just start touching this stuff and not do due diligence with. This is where community groups are a beautiful thing to wrestle with this kind of dialogue a bit deeper and take a look at the real world practical examples. But I think a common one that we can see is something like digital practices, what's normal for digital practices in younger generations right now, whether it's just even how much screen time they get as them being three-year-olds, it's crazy. I have a two-year-old who is already wants to be addicted to screen time and we, we give her like none of it, but she, she knows that there's a, a screen on her phone and she one time saw an episode of something and she wants it. And the norm is saying just give it to them even though every single stat on the planet shows how damaging and destructive and addicting screen time is, whether it's social media or video games or TV, right, in that development, but it just becomes normal because it's comfortable, because it's easy, and then even when they get a bit older, and maybe they're 12 years old, I really want a Snapchat account, even though you know it's full of exposing them to a world of anything and everything. Maybe it's one of those places where we be a bit defensive and we kind of lead a different style of parenting and say, I know that that's popular. In fact, I know all your friends are there and maybe even to those parents or coworkers or whatever is going on, you say the awkward things. You challenge in the awkward ways of saying, this is not healthy for their development. This is not good and I wanna be defensive of because God cares about the kids, so I care about the kids. And then the last part, so, you elevate the next generation, you stand up for the next generation because God stood up for you. And then the last part is you persist. You have patience and persistence that goes way beyond what feels fair with the next generation. That is probably one of the most godly things we can model in our world, being extraordinarily patient with them because God has been extraordinarily patient with us, right? When we're honest, we know how often we turn back from God. We know how often we still do the thing that God is trying to work out of our lives, the addictions, the bitterness, the things that God has said, stop it. And we're like, okay, fine. And then do it again and again, and 30, 50, 80 years of our life doing that, and God is still patient with us, amen? And we need to be patient with the next generation. And, and Kids take a lot of work. Infants take a lot of work, and toddlers do, and preteens take a lot of work, and Gen Z takes a lot of work, and millennials, and Gen X, and boomers. We all take a lot of work. We're all challenging, we need a lot of patience, and it is, again, easy to be bitter and say they are gonna ruin everything, but the kingdom says, no, no, they are the future. We can be patient with them and they can't beat our patience. They could try, like, man, my, so Adia's not even two yet, and she's already learning manipulation. It's awesome. 
she's learned to withhold uh, affection from me, and like she can be cuddly sometimes. I I routinely put her to sleep, and you know if I sing her the song she wants to sing, and I we do the tickle stuff, and the tickle dinosaur comes out, and she's super happy. But if she wants to keep going, I'm like, no, it's bedtime, and then she gets mad and she just silent gives me the silent treatment. She won't do it unless I do a little bit more, and then she's like, okay, and then she'll say, I love you, Dad, back. It's great. Tiny tests patience already. And I think it's only gonna get worse. But I think that's a challenge too for us, whether, wherever we're at, right? I'm not talking exclusively to just parents here. I'm talking not just to grandparents or aunts and uncles. If you are an employer, or maybe you're a coach, maybe you're a teacher, anywhere you're at, maybe you're volunteering at the thrift store and there's younger people working, and I'm not talking just the youngest ones, anybody in a younger stage of life than you, showing extraordinary patience. One of the best things about this is it's adopting a sacrificial heart the way Jesus has a sacrificial heart for us. And so one of the best parts about youth ministry, one of the things I really loved is it's not actually creating this intense curriculum that communicates stuff at a really cool hip level. The core behind it is creating an environment where you have a community of teenagers who actually feel the comfort and the safety to let their guards down and be themselves and be real. And the way you accomplish that is by being incredibly patient. And it takes time. The, your youth pastors and the leaders, they're patient. The volunteers who come out, they're really patient. And it starts to breed really amazing things when that comfort kind of happens and youth can actually be honest and explore and ask questions and grow and develop. Because honestly, in the teen years, everything is just guarded. But what's really more amazing is rather than just something that maybe is at a youth group one hour a week where they have that kind of zone, when parents or employers or coaches create that environment in their realms as well. The most impactful, changing, life-changing thing I ever saw was when parents of teenagers would take that effort and be patient and, be, and, and do things that honestly are not commonplace for teenagers. It's so easy for parents to be just intimidated by teenagers and say, I'm just gonna give you space, which isn't actually loving, which is actually abandoning, but to actually be patient with and persistent with and be involved in and get messy and be defensive of, to build up a community at home where you have that safe environment, and now suddenly all the friends that come over, that's that safe environment, and it can maybe even look like something like having a fun room with snacks. It can look like having a bigger dinner table so there's always a warm welcome in a room to, for people to stay in involved. That added effort will do more to elevate and show kids the design of God's image in them than pouring money in than standing from the side, than sharing posts on Facebook, being real and persistent and involved. And it can't just be parents. And this is the challenge for everybody here. This is the challenge for our church because there was a study done uh, a couple years ago. It came out, biggest study in Canada uh, about youth and young adults involved in faith and their faith development. Because right now it's the biggest generational walk away from faith that we're ever experiencing. So what's going on with that? And there was a stat that came out, um, one of the biggest things they found that made the biggest impact was when youth had four adult influences in their life, at least four. There was an exponential change, one, two, three, beneficial, helpful. Four, massive shift and change in their lives. That can't just be two parents. That needs to be all of us looking out. Four adults per one teenager 
can shape and grow and bring them closer to God, bring them closer to seeing themselves, bring them closer into this kingdom, and that elevates and defends and stands up for the next generation the way that God does for us all the time. And all of this matters because, again, God is patient with us. Second Peter 3.9 says this. Uh, Peter was one of Jesus' disciples who was writing to people who were saying, like, Jesus said he was coming back. Why is he taking so long? And Peter says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some of you understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everybody to come to repentance. Because here's the thing, for all of our walks in life, right, if you maybe grew up in the church and you're not quite sure where that moment was, but for that point in time where you confidently said, I'm following Jesus, Jesus is the Lord of my life, or if you've come to faith later in life, if God wasn't patient, he said, we're done, we're wrapping up, a week before that moment happened for you, a week before you heard about Jesus for the first time, or you made that commitment or that faith took that next step in your life, that would be it. But God is patient with us because it's literally life or death. And as followers of Jesus, being patient with and persistent with and elevating and being defensive of the next generation is literally life or death on a salvation level because we actually care about the futures, the eternal salvation for everybody and not just who's here, but for the generations growing up as well. God's elevating, defending, and patience with all of us was a heaven or hell matter. And that's why Peter says here, be thankful Jesus hasn't returned yet. And we need to be patient too, because what might feel like it should only take a week or a month or three years, might be 10 years, might be a 15 year long game with the younger generation. It might be your whole life of being patient. But I love this. Uh, What feels like it could be such a really difficult thing to pour into and lean into. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable and always work enthusiastically because you know that nothing you do for God is ever useless. The things we do for this kingdom have meaning and they take a lot of hard work and effort, but they have meaning. And I want to put the invite out here too that if you don't know Jesus yet and if this whole kingdom thing intrigues you, and if this is your first time here, hearing about any of this kind of stuff, this this might be the the time to take a step towards it, to ask bigger questions. I'm going to be hanging around here on the stage. I'd love to have that conversation with you. If you're just curious about it, maybe a friend dragged you here too, this is a chance to make that movement towards God, because there's a God who's patient with you, who elevates you, who loves you, who defends you like a crazy mama bear. And he wants you to be close. He wants you to be part of all of this. It's a wide open invitation. I'm just going to pray. God, thank you for your character of defense. God, for your care and passion for all of us. Because we're all sons and daughters. God, we're all the the younger generation in, in your world. But you don't give up on us quickly. When we think we might, somebody's a lost cause, God, you don't see lost causes. God, thank you that you are emotional and ruthless when it comes in our world's evil ways, God, and you lead us to say, stop it. God, thank you that we live in a peaceful time, that we don't have to interact in the ways of the Old Testament ways, but God, give us the boldness to speak up and defend the next generation. God, give us the boldness to continue these conversations and to find things that are honestly uncomfortable for us, but to live these kingdom values out and to put these efforts into the next generation. So God, I just pray that 
Uh, there is a mindset shift here that happens in our church, God, that we see the next generation not as a token to appreciate God, but as the real future, God, as the focus, as the priority for our time, our efforts, our money, as who to pour into, to grow and raise, lead into your kingdom so that they can do the next and the next and the next. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the sun. We thank you for the water that quenches us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. I just want to give you a reminder. Next week is July 30th. July has five Sundays, and one of the fun things we do here at the church is we make sure that Sundays never get routine and boring. So every time we have a month with five Sundays, we take that fifth Sunday, and we just completely turn it upside down on his head. We do something different. We gather together. We worship together. We are the church, but it might not be the same kind of thing as normal. So next week, just as a small teaser, and we're getting some details hashed out, weather permitting, we are going to be outdoors for sure, we are going to have food. We're inviting everyone into a bit of a potluck-style picnic, brunchy kind of vibe. Anything handheld, right? Muffins, cookies, scones. If you've got an awesome recipe and you want to bring something, send the office an email. Let us know. Let's get some amazing food together so we can just hang out, have a great time of fellowship together. And what we're going to actually be doing is looking at what it means to invest in, with our hands, faith at a child's level. All together. It's going to be a Sunday school morning, outdoors. So that's next week. Come here, 10 o'clock, still same time, same place, but we'll have signs for wherever we do the things at. Uh, but really looking forward to it. I just want to repeat that verse in 1 Corinthians because it's so encouraging. Just as I send you off, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. My dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for God is ever useless. Amen. Have a great week.